Well, it's been a real pleasure to be with you, and um, I'm wondering how many Tolkien fans we have. Most of you, most of you. Uh, with the folks who raised hands, uh, how many of you actually have read the books? And Okay, so th those folks will be a little more up to speed in what I'm talking about here, although I've been told that uh, you don't even need to read uh, The Lord of the Rings to at least get a little bit of uh, value out of a book I wrote entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil. And I want to talk about Tom Bombadil now. Uh, I got a, an email, not an email, actually an instant message this morning from uh, Rachel Fulton Brown, who teaches history at the University of Chicago. And she's a big Tolkien authority, and she just told me this morning that she's uh, using the book in her class, one of her classes. And that was fun. And she, uh, I quote her in the book, maybe that's why she, <laughs> she did that. She's a friend of mine. She's a really cool person. You might want to uh, follow her if you can. She uh, is kind of, she's more or less considered like um, the bad girl of like medieval studies uh, because she believes in like normal things. <laughs> and uh, she, she got in trouble. She became like a, a source of great uh, uh, animus when she published a blog post entitled, I think, Three Cheers for White Men, something like that. And uh, so that made her public enemy number one in academia. They actually had to kind of like um, defend her against people who were trying to, to get her kicked out of University of Chicago. The University of Chicago is an interesting school. It's a top 10 school, uh, but it was, it was explicitly established uh, with certain conservative values in mind. So even though, you know, maybe you wouldn't associate University of Chicago with that today. Um, in terms of the great book programs, you know, University of Chicago played a big role in that uh, in terms of uh, kind of uh, the whole task of promoting kind of a more free market approach to economics. The University of Chicago played a big role in that. So University of Chicago is a, is a, is a well, it's a mixed bag like everything, but it's got some good folks there. And by the way, that's another thing to note. Uh, um, there really are a lot of really solid people in higher education who believe uh, in God, who believe in uh, you know things that really make sense. Not they're not crazed, you know, Marxists, um, and they're doing good work. Uh, but you don't hear about them, but they're there. Places like the Ivy League and so forth. There, there are good people out there. Anyway, so the title of my little talk is "In the House of Tom Bombadil," and if you're familiar with Tom from The Lord of the Rings, I imagine that you're just as puzzled by his inclusion in a conference on households <laughs> as uh, you were by his presence in Tolkien's trilogy. What could the enigmatic and apparently ridiculous Tom possibly say to us? Hopefully you've read the trilogy. Some of you, I noted, uh, have. Uh, if you haven't, and your knowledge of The Lord of the Rings is limited to Peter Jackson's films. I'm afraid that you're at a disadvantage for some of what follows. You're also at a disadvantage when it comes to life. <laughs> I'll pray for you. Actually, I'm glad that Peter Jackson left him out of The Lord of the Rings um, because I won't have to clear away any of his baggage uh, when I talk about him. He would have ruined it. I don't think he gets Lord of the Rings, uh, quite frankly. First, let's review. Lord of the Rings is about overcoming temptation. The occasion of the temptation is a powerful magic ring, which not incidentally resembles the ring of Gyges from Plato's Republic. 
insofar as both make the wearer invisible. I say not incidentally because Tolkien was a world-class scholar, and I'm absolutely confident that he knew that, that uh, there was another magic ring uh, in the vast corpus of Western literature, specifically the Ring of Gyges. Now, uh, he also knew that the Ring of Gyges is used by Plato to illustrate the wickedness of the human heart. So this is another thing that people need to realize. Uh, it's not as though original sin and the human propensity to evil is like something no one ever noticed before the Christian faith showed up. Uh, there are lots and lots of people in the history of the world who noted that it seems like we're kind of disposed to do things that are wrong. And that's one of the things that Plato gets into. But the ring of the Lord of the Rings is more powerful than the one in the Republic. It's the product of Saran, a supernatural being that might just be the most powerful creature in Middle-earth. Like the rest of us, Saran is hell-bent on dominating everything around him. But unlike you or me, he actually forged a ring to get the job done. His incantation toward the end is described on the ring itself. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring uh, to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. The all here refers to other rings. Here's the rest of the verses. Eleven rings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Those rings were forged with several purposes in mind, but Saran's ring was a gambit to control them and so, and so doing bring the races of Middle-earth under his control. But his subtlety was detected and war followed. At the end of that war, the ring was cut from Saran's hand, but sadly it was not destroyed at that point. It's, instead, it eventually lost, was lost in a river. Then oddly, even providentially, after thousands of years, it finds its way into the hands of a small creature with very little interest in dominating anyone, a, Fro a hobbit named Frodo. Frodo is advised by a wizard named Gandalf to take his faithful friend Samwise, uh, his faithful, faithful servant, I should say, and go to Elrond, half-elven, the greatest lore master of Middle-earth, in order to determine what is to be done with the ring. Unfortunately, Gandalf is prevented from accompanying him, but two other hobbit friends join Frodo and Sam, and the four of them set out. But from the start, they're pursued by agents of Sauron. To escape pursuit, the hobbits enter a mysterious and very ancient forest fittingly called the Old Forest. What happens then is reminiscent of the saying, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because the Old Forest, they, uh, in the Old Forest, they come under the spell of a malevolent and very powerful willow tree known as Old Man Willow. The tree dominates the forest in a manner reminiscent of Saran. Before long, two of the hobbits find themselves trapped inside it, and a third is nearly drowned by it. Now concerning the forest and the willow, here's what we learn later. The, heart, the hearts of trees and their thoughts are often dark and strange, and filled with a hatred of things that go free upon the earth, gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning, Destroyers and usurpers. It was not called the old forest without reason, for it was indeed ancient, a survivor of vast forgotten woods, and it, in it 
there yet lived, aging no quicker than the hills, the fathers of the fathers of trees, remembering times when they were lords. The countless years had filled them with pride and rooted wisdom and with malice, but none were more dangerous than the great willow. His heart was rotten, but his strength was green, and he was cunning and a master of winds, and his song and thought ran throughout the woods on both sides of the river. His gray, thirsty spirit drew power out of the earth and spread like fine root threads in the ground and invisible twig fingers in the air, till it had under its dominion nearly all the trees of the forest. Fortunately for the hobbits, someone even more powerful than the old willow comes along in the nick of time. His name, if you haven't guessed it already, is Tom Bombadil. We learn Tom's name because the fellow can't stop singing about himself. As he comes traipsing by, this is what the hobbits hear. Hey, dole, merry dole, ring-a-dong, dillo. Ring-a-dong, hop-along, fa-la-la-willow. Tom, bomb, jolly Tom, Tom Bombadillo. Hey, come, merry dole, dairy dole, my darling. Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling. Down along under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing, comes hopping home again. Can you hear him singing? Hey, come, Derry Dole, Derry Dole and Mary O. Gold berry, gold berry, merry yellow berry O. Poor old willow man, tuck your roots away. Tom's in a hurry now. Evening will follow day. Tom's going home again. Water lilies bringing. Hey, come, Derry Dole, can you hear me singing? After this, Tom Bombadil emerges, and here's Tolkien's delightful description. Quote, There was yet another burst of song, and then suddenly, hopping and dancing along the path, there appeared above the reeds an old battered hat with a tall crown and a long blue feather stuck in the band. With another hop and a bound, there came into view a man, or so it seemed. At any rate, he was too large and heavy for a hobbit, if not quite tall enough for one of the big people, though he made enough noise for one, stumping along in great yellow boots on his thick legs and charging through the grass and the rushes like a cow going down to drink. He had a blue coat and a long brown beard. His eyes were blue and bright, and his face was as red as a ripe apple, but creased into a hundred wrinkles of laughter. In his hands, he carried on a large leaf as on a tray a small pile of white water lilies. This is followed by a striking deliverance. After being told by Frodo and Sam that their friends are trapped inside the willow, Tom literally sings them free. You heard that right. He delivers them with nothing more than a song. After that, the capering and boisterous Tom invites the hobbits to his house, and then without waiting for them, he bounds away and out of sight. The bewildered hobbits trudge along after, and just as the sun is going down, making it the way difficult to see, they spy Tom's house in the distance. A door opens, light streams out, and Tom's wife, Goldberry, a figure nearly as mysterious as Tom, sings them the rest of the way into the house. Then she says, Come, dear folk, taking Frodo by the hand, laugh and be merry. I am Goldberry, daughter of the river. Then lightly she passed them and closed the door. She turned her back to it with her arms spread across it. Let us shut out the night, she said, for you are still afraid perhaps of mist and tree shadows and deep water and untamed things. 
Fear nothing, for tonight you were under the roof of Tom Bombadil. What follows is a delightful stay lasting two nights and a day. The house of Tom Bombadil proves to be a safe haven in a perilous land. Just who is this guy, Tom Bombadil? Fortunately for the reader, Frodo thinks to ask that very question of the people in the know, and what they say is powerfully suggestive. Here's Frodo's question to Goldberry and her reply. Fair lady, said Frodo, tell me if my asking does not seem foolish, who is Tom Bombadil? He is, said Goldberry, staying her swift movements and smiling. Frodo looked at her questioningly. He is as you have seen him, she said in answer to his look. He is master of wood, water, and hill. Then all this strange land belongs to him? No, indeed, she answered, and her smile faded. That would indeed be a burden. She added in a low voice as if to herself, the trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land each belong to themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master. No one ever caught old Tom walking in the forest or wading in the water or leaping on the hilltops under light and shadow. He has no fear. Tom is master. A door opened and in came Tom Bombadil. He now had no hat and his thick brown hair was crowned with autumn leaves. So Tom is master, and as a sign, if you will, Tom appears with his forest crown. But Frodo wants to know more. So next day, after Tom has regaled the hobbits with many remarkable stories, Frodo asks Tom directly, Who are you, master? And here is his reply. Hey, what? said Tom, sitting up, his eyes glinting in the gloom. Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you, alone, yourself, and nameless? But you are old, and I am, or you are young, I should say, and I am old. Eldest, that's what I am. Mark my words, my friends. Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. So Tom is the old master. He doesn't look like a master. He looks more like a jester. Goldberry says he's never been caught, and Tom says the same, and somehow that's relevant. In search of an explanation, my mind ran to virtue, particularly to self-control, the mastery of oneself. But Tom doesn't strike me as someone who is exercising self-control. There's no evidence of even a struggle. Instead, I see amusement, a sort of playfulness you get when fathers wrestle with toddlers, feigned effort, and lots of laughing. I think something of that comes through when Tom asks to see Frodo's ring. Show me the precious ring, he said suddenly in the midst of a story. And Frodo, to his own astonishment, drew out the chain from his pocket and unfastening the ring, handed it over to Tom at once. It seemed to grow larger as it lay for a moment in his big brown skin hand. Then suddenly he put it to his eye and laughed. For a second, the hobbits had a vision both comical and alarming of his bright blue eye gleaming through the circle of gold. Then Tom put the ring around the end of his little finger and held it up to the candlelight. For a moment, the hobbits noticed nothing strange about this. Then they gasped. There was no sign of Tom disappearing. Tom laughed again, and then he spun the ring in the air, and it vanished in a flash. Frodo gave a cry, and Tom leaned forward and handed it back to him with a smile. What have we here? 
Tom makes light of something Frodo will eventually find too heavy to bear. And Tom doesn't disappear. Instead, he makes the ring disappear. So does Tom's mastery extend even to the ring? Many theories have been suggested that, uh, for just who or what Tom is, but no one can say for sure, maybe not even Tolkien. In this talk, I'm interested in entertaining a different question, a how question, as in how come Tom can't be caught? Or how is he the master of things when each of those things belong to themselves? And how is it possible for the light-hearted Tom to take Saran's ring so lightly? In the course of uh, their time in Tom's house, the hobbits learned that Tom knows many things. Quote, he told them many remarkable stories sometimes half as if speaking to himself, sometimes looking at them suddenly with a bright blue eye under his deep brows. Often his voice would turn to song and he would get out of his chair and dance about. He told them tales of bees and flowers, the ways of trees and the strange creatures of the forest, about evil things and good things, things friendly and things unfriendly, cruel things and kind things, and secrets hidden under brambles. He even knew the hobbits better than he'd let on. Quote, he appeared already to know much about them and all their families, and indeed know much of all the history and doings of the Shire from days hardly remembered among the hobbits themselves. Lore, L-O-R-E, is an old-fashioned word for knowledge. And I suspect that Tolkien preferred it to the word knowledge. Its root means furrow or track. This seems to imply that lore is something to follow, something that takes you, takes you somewhere, something to obey. On the face of knowledge, uh, on, I'm sorry, on the face of it, knowledge of this kind looks like servitude, but paradoxically, it is the truth that makes you free. By, contra- by contrast, for modern people, knowledge is power. Knowledge of this sort is believed to be amoral and free of moral encumbrances. But freeing knowledge from morality is actually a kind of trap. Allow me to illustrate with another character in the story of The Lord of the Rings. In The Lord of the Rings, there is someone who seeks knowledge of that kind. His name is Saruman, and he's a wizard like Gandalf. But he's also a traitor, as Gandalf shows when he recalls a conversation with him. Quote, You have come. That was all the purpose of my message, and here you will stay, Gandalf the Grey, and rest from your journeys. For I am Saruman the Wise, Saruman the Ringmaker, Saruman of many colors. I looked then, and I saw that his rows, which had seemed white, were not so, but were woven of all colors, and if he moved, they shimmered and changed hues so that the eye was bewildered. I liked white better, I said. White, he sneered. It serves as a beginning. White cloth may be dyed, the white page may be overwritten, and the white light can be broken. In which case, it is no longer white, said I. And he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. You need not speak to me as to one of the fools that you take for friends, said he. I have not brought you hither to be instructed by you, but to give you a choice. He drew himself up and began to declaim, as if he were making a speech long rehearsed. The elder days are gone. The middle days are passing. The younger days are beginning. 
the time of the elves is over. But our time is at hand, the world of men, which we must rule, but we must have power, power to order all things as we will, for that good which only the wise can see. And listen, Gandalf, my old friend and helper, he said, coming near and now speaking in a softer voice. I said we, for we it may be if you join me. When Gandalf refuses the offer, Saruman changes his tune. I did not expect you to show wisdom, even in your own behalf, but I gave you the chance of aiding me willingly and so saving yourself much trouble and pain. The third choice is to stay here until the end. Until what end? Until you reveal to me where the one may be found. So, Saruman breaks things to know them, and that includes people. Knowledge is power, indeed. By the way, I'm pretty sure that Tolkien had Newton his experiments with optics and with the prism in mind when he wrote that scene. The white light may be broken. That's a famous sort of turning point in the history of Western thought. By contrast, Bombadil used his lure to free the hobbits and stay free himself. What did Bombadil know that Saruman did not? What Gandalf points out, the path or the furrow of wisdom. Bombadil's power doesn't come from good intentions. Its source is deeper than that. I believe it arises from what he knows, but uh, how do I know? Well, I can't say for certain. It's just my educated guess, my hypothesis, but I believe there's evidence for my thesis. It was the singing that clued me in. Bombadil's silly nonsense singing, or so it seemed. Tolkien was a fussy writer, so when he makes an aside, we should pay attention. And here's this aside I'm thinking about. Quote, suddenly out of a long string of nonsense words, or so they seemed, the voice rose up loud and clear and burst into song. There's something about those songs. He saved the hobbits with one, and that got me thinking, where else is there singing in Tolkien? Sure, sure, lots of places, but what was the first place? In the Silmarillion, Tolkien's posthumously published legendarium that informed the Lord of the Rings, we're given the story of the creation of Middle-earth. And there we learn that music played a key role. Middle-earth is actually sung into being. Raw power isn't the basis of its order. Instead, the basis of its order and of being itself is harmony. If you're not familiar with the Cimmerillion, here's how the music is described in the first chapter. In the beginning, there was Aru, the One, who in Arda is called Iluvatar, and he first made the Anur, the Holy Ones, that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made. And he spoke to them and propounded to them themes of music, and they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while, they sang only each alone, or but a few together, while the rest hearkened, for each comprehended only that part of the mind of Iluvatar from which he had come. And in understanding of their brethren, they grew but slowly. Yet ever as they listened, they came to deeper understanding and increased in unison and harmony. What follows is a grand chorus, and as the song moves along, different themes run through it. But as the song is sung, a singer named Melkor introduces disharmony, 
and some near him join in the dissonance. What follows is a conflict that threatens to descend into chaos. But Iluvatar announces a new theme, and then another, and saves the song, and even enfolds the disharmony into it. When the music is completed, this follows. Then Iluvatar spoke and said, Mighty are the Anur, and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know, and all the Anur, that I am Iluvatar. Those things which ye have sung I will show forth, that ye may see what ye have done. Iluvatar then reveals that the song has become the flesh and blood of a new world. The world in which the Lord of the Rings and every other story in Tolkien's Legendarium is told. Today, many people rely on science to define reality. According to these folks, if science can't know something, there's nothing to know. The term for that is positivism. But science can't even explain its own story scientifically. On the other hand, and on its own terms, Christianity is the revelation of ultimate reality. And like Tolkien's Arda, according to the Christian faith, the world that we live in was made from the outside. In Christianity, if anything is unnecessary, it's the world. But what is necessary is the one who made it. Here's how the Apostle John put it in the introduction to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. End of quote. So like Christianity, in the Silmarillion, there is a fall into dissonance. Since our world has that in common with Tolkien's fictional world, perhaps Tolkien is saying something about the path of wisdom in our world with Tom Bombadil. Tom is master. Another way to put this is he exercises dominion in his domain. Dominion has gotten a lot of bad press. It's an odd thing, in a way, because without it, we wouldn't have many of the things that make life livable. The exercise of dominion, in some cases, or in some sense, I should say, is inevitable. After all, we must make a home for ourselves in the world, and domus is the Latin word for home. Domus, by the way, is the source of the words dominion, domination, domain, and, of course, domestic. For Christians and Jews and anyone else who believes in the God of the Bible, human beings have been given this world in order to make a home out of it. Here's the pregnant passage from the book of Genesis. Quote, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. End of quote. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated dominion means something like skilled mastery, and that's definitely what we see when we look at Tom. But skilled mastery can be a problem, and we see that with the ring of power. When we see the ring of power in action, we see something very different than Tom Bombadil. When it comes to the ring, we see skill used in a domineering way. One of the devilish things about knowledge today is that it's sued for divorce from wisdom. They're not even on speaking terms in many minds. Human wisdom was once based on a deeper wisdom written into the world, and it could only be acquired through dedicated and grateful study. But for many modern people, there's nothing to be grateful for because there's no one to thank. Instead of wisdom, many people are after the facts that they can use. 
This underlies much of what goes by the name science today. And perhaps it's surprising, uh, but Tolkien's good friend C.S. Lewis actually saw a connection between how we think of science and magic. Here's something from his book, The Abolition of Man. Quote, there's something which unites magic and applied science or technology while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is now how to subdue reality to the wishes of men, and the solution is technique. We see this, by the way, in transhumanism and transgenderism and all the trans-transisms. <laughs> Basically, the idea is that the physical world has to conform to our desires, and everybody has to play along. If you think that the word, word world, I should say, is in some sense a reflection of divine wisdom, then you're oppressing uh, other people, because after all, you can't really know that. You can only know what you want. There's a whole theory of knowledge behind postmodernism that I could get into, but it's depressing. So, <laughs> What does this have to do with Tom Bombadil? Quite a bit, I think. The Lord of the Rings contains many things, and one of those things is an important distinction. Throughout the Lord of the Rings, the good professor, by the way, the word professor is an interesting word. It means to profess. It means to speak, to proclaim something. A professor is someone who proclaims or speaks. Uh, and so you can either be a professor of truth, a professor of falsehood, what have you. So he, uh, Tolkien, a good professor, uh, distinguishes between dominion and domination. Uh, we need to learn how to distinguish those for ourselves because very often they get blended in uh, unprincipled and tendentious ways. So here's my point in a nutshell. Tom is an image of what true dominion looks like. Is this really something that Tolkien had in mind when he wrote about Tom? Yes, I think so, at least in part. Uh, Tolkien could be very clear about his beliefs, especially in the context of anything he wrote on the subject of fairy tales. Take this for instance, quote, the love of fairy is the love of love, a relationship toward all things, animate and inanimate, which includes love and respect, and removes or modifies the spirit of possession and domination. Without it, even plain utility will in fact become less useful or will turn to ruthlessness and lead only to mere power, ultimately destructive." End of quote. In the modern world, the quest for knowledge is premised on the belief that the natural world is nothing more than a vast machine. Since it is merely a machine, learning how it works entails disassembly, breaking things down into their constituent parts. Unfortunately for the things themselves, this is something of a downgrade from the way that they were once understood. Everything from trees to rivers to people, nothing is exempt. Now because they are just things, they can be reassembled in novel ways. Think of Frankenstein's monster, for example. All this is implicit in Saruman's attitude and behavior. He's a magician in the sense C.S. Lewis so aptly described. In contrast, Gandalf spoke up for the older way of knowing, a way that knows things without breaking them. In the old way of knowing, things are more than the sum of their parts. If you've heard that 
term before, now you know what it refers to. Hopefully you can see the wisdom in this way of knowing things. After all, you are more than the sum of your parts. You're not a machine. You are a human being with a name and an identity and a will of your own. You have a human nature, something that can only be disassembled at the price of your humanity. Transhumanism is the obliteration of that. If you see the world the way Saruman does, you'll come to resemble a machine yourself. That's the way things work. Whatever you think is the final truth of things, that's what you conform to. In The Lord of the Rings, we're told that Saruman, quote, has a mind of metal and wheels, and he did not care for growing things, except as far as they serve him for the moment, end of quote. Now let's contrast that with Tom. Saruman sets a trap for Gandalf, but Tom sets the hobbits free from Old Man Willow. What this demonstrates is isn't just that Tom is good and Saruman isn't, but how two different understandings of knowledge work themselves out in different ways. One catches things to control them, the other frees them in order to commune with them. What does Tom say to the hobbits after he frees them from the tree? Come to my house. Let's enjoy some time together. Let's get to know each other. That's the implication. Things belong to themselves. And yet, there is a master. Does that still strike you as odd? Think of it this way. Tom's mastery is limited. He doesn't own things. He doesn't break them. Instead, he knows them in a very different way. When you're old, you should know more than young folks. Since Tom is the oldest of all, he should know the most. And with these things in mind, a question occurred to me. Is Tom old enough to remember the song of the Anur? If so, he knows the songs that gave created things their natures. We're told in Genesis that the animals were brought to Adam so that he could name them. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. But how did Adam go about that? Did he just make up names arbitrarily, or did he base the names on something? If the latter, it must in some way express the natures of those things that are named. With this in mind, it was once believed that recovering Adamic language might help restore the dominion that was lost when Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise. One hypothesis was that Hebrew might be Adamic in nature. After all, the Old Testament was written in it. Another theory was that all human languages are somehow adulterations of an original language. And philologists did, uh, did, but the philologists didn't get very far in their quest to find that language, though. Families of languages could be traced to common ancestors. Indo-European is a classic example, the mother tongue of many European tongues, Finnish and Basque being notable exceptions. We're not really sure where those languages came from. They're just weird. But philology proved to be a dead end when it came to distilling the original Adamic language. But as odd as this may sound, there was another way back to an original primordial language, and the way is mathematics. How can math give us a language with which to exercise dominion? Here's Galileo explaining how. Remember Galileo, right? Quote, philosophy is written in this grand book, the universe, which stands continually open to our gaze. But the book cannot be understood unless one first learns to comprehend the language and read the letters in which it is composed 
It is written in the language of mathematics, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Without these, one wanders about as a dark labyrinth. By the way, it's interesting to note that the entrance uh, uh, to the academy that uh, uh, was established by Plato uh, had a saying uh, over the gate, over the door, uh, if you don't understand geometry, don't come in. Basically, way to screen out, I guess, imbeciles. I'm <laughs> the notion that you could use mathematics to understand the world may seem like a modern idea, but in fact, it's a very, very old one. It's the way of the quadrivium, which is a branch of the liberal arts. And what this way was believed to lead you to may come as something of a surprise. Classical education was something that the Inklings understood really well. That honorary Inkling, Dorothy Sayers, actually wrote a book uh, calling for its recovery entitled The Lost Tools of Learning. It consisted of seven fields of study, broken down into two groups, the trivium for three, which followed this progression, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and a second group, the quadrivium for four, which followed another progression, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and get this, music. Music was understood as the highest form of the quadrivium. Now, I've ambled on for a while. I've talked about knowledge and wisdom, domination and dominion, and how natures are, in, uh, and, and now eight natures and harmonies. I need to arrive at the point at, uh, at the point of the talk. Let's see if I can do that with uh, a look at Tom and Goldberry and their household. A beautiful harmony can be sensed in Tom's house. We see it in the mundane routines of Tom and Goldberry. Even when Tom's not singing, his words have a lyrical quality. And Goldberry's movements as she lights candles and tends the table are as graceful as a dance. When they speak or move in concert, there seems to be music that only they can hear. Even though Tom and Goldberry seem to embody very different themes, this is what we see when we see them set the table for the hobbits. Quote, yet in some fashion they seem to weave a single dance, neither hindering the other, in and out of the room and round about the table, and with great speed, food and vessels and lights were all set in order. End of quote. And once... Uh, their preparations are complete. In a blink, without explanation uh, or observation, uh, they appear before the hobbits in formal wear, dressed for the evening meal. Then begins a jolly time. And before long, the hobbits have apparently picked up the theme. After drinking what appears to be nothing more than water, the hobbits are, quote, singing merrily, as though singing was more natural, this is a quote, more natural than talking. More natural than talking. That's a telling way of putting it. Here's a, a little inside information. Uh, Tolkien's legendarium, in that uh, legendarium, we learn that a little of the music of the Anur can still be heard in the water of Middle-earth, or the waters of Middle-earth. We're told, quote, Almo, who governed the flowing of all waters and the courses of all rivers, the replenishment of springs and distilling of rain and dew throughout the world, in the deep places, he gives thought to music great and terrible, and the echo thereof it runs through all the veins of the earth. 
Nature's living in harmony is something that many of our ancestors would have recognized on sight, but, we're, but uh, which requires a word of explanation today. Tom and Goldberry dance about the table, setting dishes and lighting candles, and that says something. Their movements are set within a world made with creative intent. They are participating in something grand, something larger than themselves. If the world we live in is also a work of art, why can't we hear music ringing in our ears the way Tom and Goldberry seem to? Could it have something to do with how we perceive things? Are we even listening? Do we want to? We live in a tone-deaf time and behave as though there's no natural order to harmonize with. Instead, like Saran, we think that the world should just do what we tell it to do. Naturally, if that is all there is to it, then freedom is nothing more than doing what you want to do. And laws and customs can be boiled down to some people bossing other people around. The suspicion that this is all there is to it now runs so deep in our time that even marriage as a happy harmony of a man and wife has been lost. It has been deconstructed in the interest of liberation. And what we see in Tom and Goldberry is more the exception than the rule today. But if Tolkien is saying something true about our world, of his imaginary, if, uh, with his imaginary world, then the music is still playing in our world. And what we need to do in our time is have our hearing restored. When it came to Old Man Willow, the way Tom delivered the hobbits was by calling the tree back to its true nature. Quote, eat earth, dig deep, drink water, go to sleep. Bombadil is talking. And immediately the tree releases the hobbits. Tom knew what things were made for. In philosophy, these are called the formal and final causes of things, what they are and what they're destined for. And just like Saruman, many people don't like this because that means that things are not subject to their control. With this in mind, I think we can say that Bombadil's power doesn't come from breaking and remaking. It comes from agreeing. He knew the tunes. It is the power of Amen. So let it be. And the saying can be true for us. God has given us a nature, human nature. We have been made in his image, but he has also given us natures in two keys, male and female. And when we know those keys, we can make beautiful music together, exercising dominion, making a home for ourselves in the world, and enjoying the blessings of that. So learn to sing the tune, sing your part, and let the world stand back and wonder as you sing harmoniously 